0: we're going to go to Abraham now. So we've done Adam, we've done Noah, and now we're in Abraham. And uh, we're going to probably spend, I think, three sessions on Abraham. This session here, we're just going to do the introduction to Abraham. So we'll be focusing on this opening revelation that God gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it really is... Uh, almost all of Salvation History in a nutshell, in about three verses of the Bible. All of Salvation History is packed into about three verses. It's very, very remarkable. And then next week we're going to go to, we'll probably focus on uh, Genesis chapter 18, when these this kind of mysterious encounter between Abraham and these three men that come. And we'll, I'm going to try to show you how the three men are angels who actually represent God in a in a kind of a surprising way. They actually even represent in a force in a in a prophetic manner they represent the Trinity and uh and the incarnation of Jesus Christ as early as Genesis chapter 18. And then I'm gonna also hopefully get into uh Abraham as a heavenly intercessor, okay, as a as a saint in heaven, praying for us. And uh so that will be next week. And then finally the last uh session on Abraham will be what's called the binding of Isaac. Which is where God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and how that is uh, a prophetic foreshadowing of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and the Son of God. So uh, this is um, all you know. It's all salvation history packed into. It's very, very dense, and I'll show you you know how, where we're heading and, and, and what direction we're heading in um, very quickly. As you're if you look on your handout here. Uh, housekeeping items does anybody want to buy a revised standard version I, I'm thinking of having the parish buy ten of these something similar to this and we can keep them in there and people can use them like we use the New American Bible just as a matter of reference or if you want your own personal copy you can purchase one I don't know if anybody is interested in that Maybe I know there's one one gentleman, Gary Lalonde he's, he wants to buy one uh, does, anybody else, does anybody else want to buy a, a Revised Standard Version? How much are they? Three. It's going to be, I, I've been looking around for prices. Maybe it's more than I want, but it's probably about $16. Is it the old New
1: Testament?
0: Yeah. 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 The, pro, the other warning is that the print is kind of small. The print is kind of small, but it's not any smaller than the New American Bible. Oh, no. The New American Bible print is very, very small. This is really ridiculously small. So it's actually bigger actually than the but it's not as big as I'd like it. Okay. So maybe we got about three or four people. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, very very smooth, smooth smooth English translation. Uh very classy, very formal. Meaning when I mean formal, I mean it, it's uh there's two styles of translation of Bible's translation. On the one hand you you have what's called a dynamic uh, equivalency, which is they take the original language and they—it's uh, very interpreted and very kind of expanded. Like the New American Bible would be definitely a dynamic translation. Uh, it's very expanded, very interpreted. Um, whereas a formal equivalency is—it's not necessarily word for word, but it's closer to word for word. Okay, so it tries to get as close to the original Hebrew as you can. Um, but it's extremely smooth English. The Revised Standard Version is is probably one of the smoothest, I think, and and, and really best quality English language translations out there. So um, that's just an FYI. And then also for housekeeping, we've got the, as I said, we've got the website up, so please visit that. And um, I'm going to have the recordings up there. It's again, it's a work in progress. This really will actually probably take years, okay, <laughs> uh, of putting things up and trying to hone things and making very, very good quality. Right now, it doesn't look pretty at all. It's just white. The website's just white. There's no graphics or anything on it. So eventually, I'd like to get some kind of artwork on there and whatnot. But right now, it's just a database. And uh, my friend made it so that it's very content rich. And extremely efficient. So when you, there's no downloading with anything. If you want to hear the audio recordings, you just push play and it just goes. Alright, there's no, I mean, it's very, very content rich, very powerful. I guess I don't know anything about how he did it, but he made it so that's the way it is. Extremely efficient. You download things very easily. And, uh, I've got some old classes that I taught from years back or from last year when I was in seminary. I taught a class on apologetics, and I taught a class on patristics, and not the entire content of those classes is up there, but some of it, you know, just to kind of give you enough idea if you're interested in that. I'm going to try to start putting my Sunday homilies up there, and um, so anyways, this will be sort of a a, a home basis for catechesis, and I'll be putting these Bible studies up there as well. So if you want to follow the whole year, but you're not going to make every single one, you can always just follow at your ease whenever you want. And I think there's probably a way where you can download it into uh, your phone or whatever. I mean, I'm sure there's something that you can do that and put it in your car and listen to it. So, um, yeah, catholicpatrimony.com is what the website's called. So, uh, we're going to start here with our first of three sessions on Abraham. And before we come to understand the main text that we're looking at with Genesis chapter 12, we're going to go a little bit back to the end of the flood, which we talked about last time, and the and then we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel. Okay? So, uh, let's go quickly back here to... uh says the beginning here. So, a return to the beginning after the deluge. The deluge is an old-fashioned term for the flood. Return to the beginning after the deluge. And we see that there is these very interesting parallels between the state of the world immediately after the flood, and then the state of the world in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, when there was darkness, there was water, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water, and um, we talked last week about how there's a connection there with, uh, with baptism, with the sacrament of baptism, and the baptism of Christ in the Jordan, but in any event, you have creation out of water and chaos that's similar between Genesis 1 and then the state of the world uh, as a result of the flood. A uh, second point would be you know you've got this thing with the birds and the animals and creeping things that swarm upon the earth. So there's parallels between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 8. And then a third point would be God establishes days and seasons. That's another very interesting parallel I didn't point out last time. Is in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let there be lights in the heavens, okay, and let, uh, the greater light and the lesser light, the moon and the sun, and let them be for times and for seasons. So, the sun and the moon, in contrast to the other, uh, cultures and religions in the ancient Near East, are not for worshiping, in, in the sense that you don't worship them, okay, so, uh, they're not to be made into idols, they're not gods, but therefore, Keeping track of time so that we can worship God liturgically. All right, so the idea of liturgy and a liturgical calendar is in the Bible, right from Genesis chapter one. Okay, um, and then in Genesis chapter eight, after the flood, God says, "Okay, I'm not going to bring this another this cosmic cataclysm on the world again, but the world is going to continue in a kind of easy, regular succession. It's going to be predictable uh, from here on out." And so there will be seed time and harvest and the seasons will continue and they will cycle through. And that will be a means by which human beings can can live with some sense of security. Because if at any moment a meteor could strike the earth or if at any moment another deluge could happen, well, we wouldn't be able to live with a lot of peace or, or security. And that's precisely what God wants to give to humanity after the flood. He wants to give them a sense of peace. That's why He establishes that covenant with the rainbow as a symbol. So animals are commanded to be fruitful and multiply in both Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. Uh, there's another repetition to mankind to be fruitful and to multiply. So remember Adam is like a second, I'm sorry, Noah is like a second Adam and just like Adam was, was blessed and t- was told to be fruitful and multiply, so now Noah has to be like a second father of the world, of the human race and reproduce and replenish the world, or at least his sons and their wives. Okay, and then you have in six, dominion over the world is reestablished. Uh, there is a little bit of a difference though, because the animals are afraid of human beings now after the flood, whereas in Genesis chapter one, animals were, there was peace before the fall. There was peace between animals and, and human beings. And then there is this issue of food. God provides food for humans. But again, there's a little bit of a difference, because in Genesis chapter one, it looks like God is just giving vegetative life to mankind to eat, and not animals. Um, but then after uh, the flood, there's a specific allowance to eat animals. okay? And I don't know all the meaning of all that, but there's, there's got to be some kind of real deep significance to that. And then finally, you have human beings still made in the image of God. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26-27, you got a really foundational key verse about let us make man in our image. In the image of God, He made them. Male and female, He created them. And then in Genesis chapter 8, because of all the bloodshed and the murder that was taking place on the, on the earth, God said, God uh, uh, basically imposed capital punishment as a means of trying to reduce the, the crime and the violent, violent crime in particular. And so if, if a man sheds another man's blood by the hand of a man, should that man's blood be shed? And there's, so there's an action, an imposition of, the, of capital punishment. And it says precisely, though, because man was made in the image of God, so so something like the death penalty is actually there from a biblical point of view because of the respect for life. All right, I mean it's a little bit different than how we think of it now, and you know what we believe as Catholics about the death penalty being not the most ideal situation for a given state to propose. You know, we have to kind of talk about how we how we make that line up with these biblical texts, but just taking the text at, at its face value. Um we have the death penalty here in Genesis chapter nine precisely because of the value of human life. Alright. So we have this kind of return to the beginning, but there's a difference. So and this is now I'm going to start focusing on the differences. It's even though we've kind of gone back to the beginning, we haven't gone back to paradise. There is there's differences as we've already seen: the eating of animals, capital punishment, all these things. But also Uh, the the capital punishment is there because of concupiscence. Now, we've spoken about this in past uh, classes here. Concupiscence is uh, basically the result... It's an effect of original sin and it's a disalignment and a disharmony, uh, a disruption of the the original harmony between man's reason and man's uh, emotions and passions. Okay, so it's a disharmony and and it's all human beings are born with concupiscence and it's the root of sinful actions it's one of the most the main reasons why people <clears throat> commit sin and so that is one huge difference between post flood world and the beginning because in the beginning there was no concupiscence adam and eve remember they had the triple harmony there was a perfect harmony between adam and god between adam's reason and his the lower passions of his soul and between him uh And all the material goods of the world, that triple harmony was there. It's no longer there in Genesis chapter eight after the flood. Another difference is uh, that it's clear that the flood has not dealt fully with the seed of the serpent. Okay, so we have this cosmic battle, and I'm just a lot of this is repetition from past classes. We have this cosmic battle that's introduced in Genesis chapter three verses fifteen, where it says, "God says to the serpent, "I will place enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will smite your head and you will strike at his heel." okay so there's this enmity that's placed between the woman, the serpent, between her seed and the serpent's seed. Now, the first thing we see after um, that uh, curse on the serpent and the Adam and Eve are cursed, they're expelled from paradise, uh, we have Cain doing what to Abel? What does Cain do to his brother? He kills him. He kills him. So, the, so it's a fratricide. The first murder in human history takes place. And we start to see, oh boy, the, the seed of the serpent is, is manifesting itself. Now, Cain is a, seed, is a seed of the serpent. He's a child of the devil, so to speak. Okay, metaphorically, not literally. Alright? And, uh, but what becomes clear though is that there's this incident that takes place. It's kind of disturbing. It's very profound, but on the surface it's very disturbing where Noah, after the flood, he becomes a, a man of the ground meaning a farmer. He plants a vineyard. He drinks of the fruit thereof. Okay, the wine. He makes wine out of the out of the grapes. He doesn't fully realize, probably, you know, the church fathers say he didn't actually commit a sin, at least it wasn't subjectively culpable, because he didn't understand the power of the alcohol that he was drinking. So he he got drunk, but it you know, and a severely drunk such that he actually went unconscious, but that he didn't know what he was doing. So he wasn't it's not a formal sin. But nonetheless, it's uh, something kind of sordid and nasty. He gets drunk, he's knocked out. He's laying in his tent. He's got three sons. His third son Ham, comes in. We don't know what exactly happens. It's a little <laughs> strange. And he comes out and he tells Ham tells Shem and Japheth his brothers. Now the, the implication of the narrator is that there's some kind of a dishonoring that's taken place. There's some sort of a shaming that's taken place. And um, there's a there's a sort of a return to the original sin of Adam and Eve because you've got nakedness, you've got shame, and then Noah awakens, and then he curses the son of Ham. Uh, and so then there's a curse. So there's this kind of a repetition of that original sin with a with a consequent curse. But what becomes clear is that the seed of the serpent is still alive, even though. Cain has been, Cain and all of Cain's progeny and all of the world that had corrupted itself on the earth because of their violence, they were wiped out by the flood. Nonetheless, the seed of the serpent is not necessarily a genetic thing. And I think that's what becomes clear. Even though the entire human race is wiped out except for Noah, who's righteous, and his three sons, somehow something's still wrong. And that is because concubines it still exists in the heart of man. And so as long as concupiscence is in the world, uh, there will be the seed of uh, the serpent alive and well on the wor- in the world. And I, it reminds me of a passage from Peter, Second uh, Peter. It talks about the corruption that is in the world because of concupiscence. So there's a corruption in the world because of concupiscence. And as long as concupiscence exists, there's going to be corruption. And the flood was not ultimately successful in wiping out uh, concupiscence, and so therefore it's not ultimately successful in wiping out corruption and the seed of the serpent. So we're going to find that what ha- what's necessary is that man's heart has to be changed. All right, it's not enough just to kill bad guys. <laughs> you people got to be changed; they got to be interiorly transformed and renewed from the inside out. And so that's what God is going to start to place in motion through Abraham. Okay. Uh, and then finally, there's a resuscitation of universal human corruption. So in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11-12, through 12, it says that all of mankind had corrupted themselves on the earth because of the violence. And then in chapter 11, we have, and this is after the flood, things seem happy, but then you've got this sordid affair with Noah, getting drunk and all of that, and then you've got the Tower of Babel. And so that's what we're going to look at. That will be one of the things we look at tonight. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we talk a little bit about concupiscence. Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then after the flood, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's very interesting. God is being uh, indulgent, actually. He's saying that, you know what? I wiped out... Mankind, because of concupiscence, but then after the flood, he says it's precisely because of concupiscence that I'm basically going to be patient with him and not bring that about again. Interesting. Okay, and then you have capital punishment. I talked a little bit about that before. Okay, talking a little bit more about capital punishment here. Um, there, at one point here, before the capital punishment was imposed, what you had was that God. Um, directly dealt with human violence himself through an act of God, and we still use that phrase to this day, right? Insurance agents talk about an act of God, <laughs> meaning a flood or a fire or something that's not directly caused by by a, a person, uh, by a human being. And uh, so, before capital punishment, you have this direct divine power over life, over human life. And uh, a little side note here: One commentator I read made, or actually a few commentators made, the same point. It might be a little bit of a stretch, but I think it's interesting nonetheless. God waged war against human concupiscence by means of the deluge, but after the deluge, he set aside his bow. So, if you if you think of the weapons of war in the Bible, it's sword and bow, sword and bow. Now, so imagine God's from heaven and he's waging war against human sin, right? And he's doing that with a bow, so to speak, and it's rain. Okay, so that he sends the flood with this huge flood of water. And that's like his bow of war. That's how he's waging war against human sin. But then after the flood, he sets aside his bow of war. He sets it aside. And that's where you get the rainbow. So then the rainbow becomes a sign of peace. Peace between God and humanity. A sign that he's never going to bring the flood back on, on the world again. Uh, so he sets his bow of war again, and he makes peace with mankind and Then what happens though is so there still has to be some means of limiting uh, the the innate propensity of human beings to corruption and so what that 's going to be is human government, but particularly human government, as expressed through capital punishment okay so but it 's not god who 's directly doing it it 's God through human beings and through human government now man is responsible. For limiting the kind of the, the the potential for for human violence that's in our hearts, and he's going to do that through uh, capital punishment. So instead, it will be man himself via capital punishment that keeps human violence in check. And we read about that in Genesis nine verse six. Now, what's very interesting is when you study Catholic moral theology, uh, what becomes very clear is that uh, there there is absolutely Um, there's really no, especially if you come from a very strict, uh, um, theological school of thought, uh, namely Thomism, which I'm, I'm kind of a Thomist myself, and and that is there really isn't any morally justifiable reasons to ever use, uh, um, violence against another person to the point of actually killing them. Okay? Uh, there's, there's some justification for self defense even if self-defense results in the death of the other person, but it's explained how it's morally justified is through this principle called double effect. Uh, and it's a, it's, it would be way too much for me to get into right now, but it's very interesting because essentially what this, this, this moral vision uh, proposes is that it, when a person justifiably defends themselves against the violent assault of another it's really, he's not trying to kill the person, he's trying to use force to stop the violence. And if that results in the person's death, okay, and it might be a foreseen result of that, but it's not intended, it's not directly intended. So there's this principle called double effect, and the point is, is that you can never directly will the death of another human being, you as a personal, private, moral agent. But what about war, and what about capital punishment? This is very interesting. Basically, by virtue of divine, I'm sorry, by virtue of human authority, there is no moral justification for either war or capital punishment, only divine justification. That means that whenever human beings we, uh, wage war justly and whenever they wield the, the 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 power of capital punishment justly, it's by virtue of divine authority that God is actually giving he's delegating divine authority to human beings to actually exercise that all right and what you find in the old testament oftentimes our kings and governors are called things like gods sons of gods and and divine beings because human authority as it's been established by god's providence the authority of the state it participates in a a sort of divine authority, inasmuch as it has the right in certain circumstances to wage war and to to use police force to take human life, it's actually participating in divine authority. Because only God has the right over human life. And when the state exercises it, it does it in the name of God. So it's really very, very heavy duty uh, kind of authority that that human governments wield uh, from the biblical point of view. So, the deluge is not, now we're moving on to the second difference here, the deluge has not dealt fully with the seed of the serpent. Alright, we've got this uh, story of Noah's fall, so to speak. Alright. But what's interesting is this though, when the first sort of uh, progeny or offspring of the serpent shows up in the person of Cain, he kills a, a brother. But in the case of Ham, sinning against Noah, it's the sin against the father all right so there's this it's there's this uh, instead of directed towards the brother it's directed towards the father and it's really because of that it's really even kind of worse it's a worse sort of sin even though it's not murder all right so then there's a resuscitation of universal human corruption all right so now let's read genesis Uh, Chapter 11, and we can have our volunteer here. Who wants to volunteer? We had a couple people last week. I know Tony was one of our volunteers. Who else did we have? Anybody else want to volunteer? Would you like to volunteer?
1: I can read, but i got a different
0: Bible. Okay, that's all right. Why don't you read Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. So this is the Tower of Babel. At first,
1: the people of the whole world had only one language, they used the same words. As they wandered about in the east, they came to a plain in Babylonia and settled there. They said to one another, Come on, let's make bricks and bake them hard. So they had bricks to build with and tar to hold them together. They said, Now let's build a city with a tower that reaches the sky so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which those men had built. And he said, Now then, these are all one people, and they speak one language. This is just the beginning of what they are going to do. Soon they will be able to do anything they want. Let us cook down and mix up their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them all over the earth, and they stopped building the city the city was called babylon because there the lord mixed up the language and all people had from there he scattered them all over the earth
0: okay that's a very interesting translation the decisions they made there they for example the traditional translation of the hebrew babel is normally translated babel in english and they've actually translated babylon which is actually a perfectly justifiable translation uh, and it actually kind of in certain ways it kind of almost brings out the point better uh, but it, the, in the beginning of that translation, it says that they went to the plain of Babylon, and actually in the Hebrew it's Shinar, but if you know the geography, it's the same thing. But, but they took, you know, I it's, it's an interesting translation. Um, so, we have, uh, this introduction here to this city with a tower, who's going, it's going to be built into the heavens, basically, is what is being said. It, the translation says we're going to build it as high as the sky. Which, which captures the thought, okay? Which captures the thought accurately. So, they want to make a name for themselves. And they want to be united into one so that they're not scattered abroad. God, after the flood, just told humankind to fill the earth. And humankind just says, okay, let's all stick together. <laughs> so they're doing the opposite of what God intended them to do. And they want to make a name for themselves. So let's talk about this. It's very, very subtle, but this... Um, The Bible is often written from the point of view of a very important uh, event that takes place around the year 585 or so. I think specifically 586 B.C. It's the, the fall of Jerusalem being taken over by the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians are this... they become this key figure and they become almost archetypical or like an image and a symbol in the Old Testament. Babylon is a symbol of basically everything that, which is proud and opposed to God. So Babylon, this is the symbol. Babylon is a symbol of the, of the pride of man, uh, the strength of man, man's resources and ability to sort of organize the world, kind of get things done, but uh, a strength that is independent of God, and so therefore prideful and sinful. And uh, this is what they do. They say, we're going to take these bricks, and if you study... Babylon is a very old civilization, and it goes back really, really far. And so there's all different phases of it. But you go back to its oldest phases, and what they would build is things that were like the pyramids. They're called ziggurats, okay? And uh, they were they were thought to be like um, a man-made religious mountain, uh, a, a meeting point, like so that the priests would go up on top of this, and they would be a meeting point between the divine and human beings, okay? And um, it was a way of basically getting to heaven, so to speak. But it was not according to the mind of the true transcendent God. It was a human religion. And they built it with these kind of bricks. And so they talk about these bricks. Let's bake these bricks and make them hard. And it's all a reference to actual things that people, that the Babylonian civilization actually did. All right? So it's something like a ziggurat. It represents the apex of, I'm going to use this word here, anthropocentrism. Okay, so anthropos is man, and centrism is, you know. So instead of theocentric, you've got this anthropocentric kind of mindset, meaning that human beings are the, the center of the world. Everything revolves around human beings as opposed to everything revolving around God. And they want to make a name for themselves. Okay, so Babel, Babylon, all right. Um, in Hebrew, it's Babel, if you look right down on the very bottom here. Uh, N-B is, is, is note well. Babel and Babylon translate the same Hebrew word, Babel. And so you can go through, I just gave three references of the Old Testament, but there's dozens upon dozens upon dozens where you can see the same word that is traditionally in the English language translated Babel is it's the same word translated Babylon throughout probably a hundred other passages in the Bible. So, um, this translation that, that we, ha- we just heard is unique because that's the only one I've ever heard translate the word Babylon in Genesis 11. So, Babel and Babylon are the same thing. Uh, I think the reason why it's traditionally been retained Babel is because when we talk about, you know, he's babbling, okay, there, there, is, a, there is some kind of a, at least a folkloric relationship between our usage of the word Babel, he's babbling. And then the story in Genesis chapter 11, where all the languages are divided and they, they can't understand each other, and it's like they're babbling to each other. Um, and then, uh, so anyways, you have okay. So you have a city in Genesis chapter 11, brings us back to Cain's city in Genesis 4. So let's go back to Cain again. Cain is this original expression of the seed of the serpent. Now God um, curses Cain, and he says. First of all, the earth has been cursed to begin with. The Adama, the ground, has been cursed to begin with because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But then because of Cain's fratricide, it's cursed even more. And it's not just that, as it, as it is with the case of Adam, Adam's got to labor over the earth, and, and, and but eventually it will, it, he'll be able to eat his bread. I mean, he will be able to eat his bread, but it's going to be involve a lot of labor. With Cain, who is a farmer... He's, doesn't matter how hard he works, it's not going to yield its strength to him. So no matter how hard he works, and so he can't be a farmer anymore. Now, farming was, uh, you know, agricultural and, you know, modern anthropologists, paleoanthropologists and anthropologists will tell you this, that human beings, uh, before they actually settle down and actually stay in one place, they have to know how to farm. So agriculture is the first step in human beings actually staying in one place and moving out of a nomadic and a, and a hunter-gatherer phase of, of human existence into an actual stable form of existence. You have to know how to farm, and uh, unless you farm, unless human ancient human civilizations farmed, they were hunters and gatherers, and they were no, or they were nomads. They were shepherds, and they just kind of wandered around. They didn't have a home. Okay, and so. It's really kind of a it's it's a very sort of tragic curse that's on Cain. God says that I'm basically going to take away your power to be a farmer. So taking away his agricultural potential makes it so that he has to be a wanderer on the earth. And so Cain says, I'm going to be a wanderer on the earth, and uh, you know I'm going to be a fugitive and an exile. Anybody who sees me is going to kill me. And God says, Well, okay, I'll put a mark on you so people don't don't kill you. Actually, some kind of this is a very Interesting thing here, what is this mark that's on Cain? Okay, um, I think there's other passages in the Bible that have, talk about a mark on people that, that are references to Cain. But in any event, Cain is, because he's not a farmer anymore, he's got to be a wanderer. But what's the first thing that Cain does? He goes and he builds a city. Okay, So Cain is trying to overcome the curse that God has put on him. God has punished him, and Cain in his own strength is trying to overcome that and oppose it. And cancel it out. So, in his own human resources, uh, he's trying to cancel out the consequences of his own sin. All right, as a, as opposed to you know repentance, forgiveness, internal regeneration, all that kinds of stuff. He's through his own human means trying to undo the uh, the, the consequences of sin. So he builds a city, and it's the first mention of the city in the Bible is the city that Cain builds. And a city becomes almost kind of a, a symbol in the Old Testament as uh, maybe potentially sinful because what you have is human beings who are sinful congregated into one area. And so it's a concentration of human sin. And the kind of the nomadic life where human beings are sort of spread out and living in tents is portrayed as a little bit more pure, a pure lifestyle of lifestyle. Okay? That that theme you can find that in the Old Testament. Um, there's a there's a this family called the Rechabites, and they lived like under religious vows, and all. it's a very very fascinating uh, family uh, that you read about in Jeremiah. And they, you know, their father commanded them to live in tents throughout their whole generations, precisely so that they would avoid going to to the city. And we've got the saying today, even today, sin city, you know. Ah. Uh, you know, there is a certain thing where cities are kind of conglomerations of, of sin. And we've got the, it's a stereotype, but there's probably some truth to it. You know, country life is a little more uh, virtuous and, you know, people are, aren't quite as, as uh, worldly and corrupted if they're living in the country as opposed to if they live in the city. So you see that you see that theme in the Old Testament, but you see another theme as well. That's maybe not, these are just images and metaphors, okay? You can't take them too literally. Uh, you see another theme where there's an opposition between two cities. You see this this kind of evil city, and you see a good city, all right? City of God versus the city of man. So now you have two cities that are being opposed to each other all throughout the Old Testament, and we see it in the New Testament as well. So we'll get into that, okay? So basically, uh, the city that Cain builds is now almost resuscitated in the tower in Babylon. In Babel. they build a great city instead of spreading abroad and spreading out like God told them. They concentrate their powers and their resources into the city. They build a, uh, this big tower towards heaven. And um, we've got Cain city all over again, basically. And it's really a symbol of the city of man. So now we've got, uh, I have this heading here, the Tower of Babylon, Luciferian pride. Okay. So uh, those who build the Tower of Babel seek glory on their own terms, like Lucifer, king of Babylon, and like the Antichrist will. So we'll go through some texts here to kind of fill out this point that I'm making here. This is, again, a very broad level theme that goes throughout the entire Bible. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 14, it's very interesting because there's a prophecy or an oracle that the prophet uh, aims against the king of Babylon. Babylon being this great oppressor. All right, This, is, uh, this civilization that has oppressed the chosen people of God, the, the elect Israel. And uh, in Isaiah 14, the prophet starts to uh, condemn the king of Babylon. Okay, It's specifically the king of Babylon. And it's very interesting because he does not give a, a particular name like Nebuchadnezzar or whoever. He doesn't give a name. He just talks about the king of Babylon. And so this king of Babylon is probably not to be really identified with any given particular human being, but it's really what's being shown us here is satan is the devil okay so uh this is what it says how you are fallen from heaven o lucifer son of the morning or son of dawn how you are cut down to the ground you who laid the nations low you said in your heart so this is this is lucifer the king of babylon saying in his heart i will ascend to heaven above the stars of god i will set my throne on high I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Okay, so you have this Luciferian pride. Lucifer, by the way, is the name of the morning star. Um, I can't remember what it's called in Latin. It's probably, it's like, I think it actually is the uh, it's the Hesperus or something like that. Anyway, uh, it's, There's a—it's Venus, actually. Okay, so the planet Venus, when you look at it in the evening, if you if you check it out, I think that it's something like it's called the evening star because it's like the first thing that you see, and it brings the evening in, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And then conversely, in the morning, uh, when the the horizon starts to become a little bit lightened, you see a star on the horizon. It's actually—it's a planet. It's Venus, and that's the morning star. Okay, and it was also called Uh, Lucifer, if you think of the the word Lucifer, it's got two aspects to it. Uh, Luce is light and fer, feros is carrier. Okay, so that which brings the light. So Venus carries carries the light of morning on his back, so to speak. Okay, in the morning. So when we see Lucifer, when we see the morning star, the, the dawn comes. And it's very glorious. It's a very beautiful star. And so, likewise, this king of Babylon was supposed to be you know, the stars in the Old Testament are symbols of angelic beings. Okay? So the angels in the Old Testament are all, and the New Testament as well, are likened to stars. Alright? And so you have the stars and they're beautiful. You have these kind of angelic beings. It's got these images of angels. And then you've got this very beautiful, glorious angelic being called the Lightbringer, Lucifer. Okay? Well, but he's prideful. And he says, I'm going to be great. I'm going to be like God. Um, I will ascend to heaven. Now, what do we see with the Tower of Babel? Its top is in the heavens. all right. And if it's like a ziggurat, it's like a big mountain. All right? I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far north. So there's this idea of like kind of a sacred mountain upon which the angelic beings assemble as a council of God to sort of advise Him or plan with Him. And in fact, in Genesis 11, we kind of hear an echo of this assembly of the angelic beings because God says, let us go down and confuse their languages. So God is referring, he's the first person plural. So it's, it's him, but it's also the angels that he's talking about. And so there's these angelic beings that come down to confuse uh, the languages and, in Babel. Alright, so I will sit on the mountain of the assembly of the far north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, something I want to make really clear to all of us is that we are called to be like God. God has that vocation on, our, on us from the beginning. Adam and Eve were called to be like God. And by, because they were created in a state of grace, they were God-like. Because grace makes us like God. But they were called to also to glory. Remember, I was talking about how grace is the seed of glory. It's through grace that we travel on this route towards our heavenly uh, destination, and we eventually arrive at glory. It's divine glory, and but it's God's way of doing it. Okay, so um, the, the the theologians in the Middle Ages teach that Lucifer's sin, the devil's sin, Satan's sin was that not just that he wanted to be like God, because actually he was called to be like God, just like Adam and Eve. All angels were created in a state of grace and called to glory. They were st- they were created in divine grace, called to divine glory. So it's not wrong to want to be like God, but you've got to become like God and seek to be like God on God's terms and not in your own terms. And that was Lucifer's issue, is he wanted to be like God according to his own way, all right? So the the theologians of the Middle Ages teach that Lucifer's sin was that he aspired to the divine likeness by virtue of his own powers, his own intrinsic created powers, all right? And that is really one of the most supreme acts of pride that there is, okay? Is to think that you have the resources in yourself to become to fulfill God's will for your for yourself, it's Pharisaical pride. Uh, this is it's actually a formal heresy in the ancient church. It's called Pelagianism, and uh, we have to understand that as Christians, we cannot become holy. We cannot become good, and we cannot do God's will and become the people that God wants us to be from our own natural resources. Just cannot do it. Uh, it it requires God's grace and. Um, And so that requires us to be humble and to submit to God. Uh, I think it was the second or the first class. I talked about how there was the triple harmony in the beginning. And I talked about the passage in the Gospels where the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, You know, I'd like you to come and heal my servant. Uh, And Jesus says, Okay, I'll go, I'll I'll heal your servant. So he starts walking to his house. And then he gets word and he says, Oh, no, no, it's not necessary for you to come. Just say the word. My servant will be healed, for I also am a man under authority. It's a very interesting thing he says. He says, for I also am a man under authority, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it, and then to my one of my soldiers, do that, and he does that. And what we learn there is that this centurion, he had the ability to have authority under that which was below him, because he himself submitted himself to that which was above him. Alright? And so the ability that the true authority is delegated to us from above. And centurion recognized that in Jesus because Jesus, as as human, was in submission to God the Father. Perfect submission. And so then all the authority of God the Father flowed through Christ, and then Christ could command, because he was in submission. All right, so he had authority because he was under authority. Lucifer did the opposite. He wanted to be out from under authority, all authority. He wanted to be the supreme authority. And then he wanted to command at the same time. All right? So um, there's a pride that makes us try to get off that original foundation of God or get out from underneath that original covering of God, whereas humility submits to that covering and, and understands that it can't stand unless it stands on that more original foundation which is God. So uh, here's another king of Babylon we read about in the book of Daniel all right and uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is walking on his buildings and he's looking out over his kingdom all right and he says it's very very pompous okay. He goes, uh, the king reflected and said, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace, the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And then he's a re- right then and there, his mind is taken away from him and he's reduced to the state of an animal. And his hair grows long. I mean, he goes out in the forest basically, and he starts eating grass like an ox. And his his nails grow long, and his hair grows long, and he becomes an animal. Okay, not an animal literally, but he becomes like an animal. All right. And so what we learn is this: we go back to the divine image, right in Genesis chapter one, when God says, "Let us make man in our image." Human beings are made in the image of God. Animals are not. But when we sin and we lose grace, and we we get off that original foundation, or we get out from underneath that covering of God, we dehumanize ourselves. We become what God never intended human beings to be. And we become like animals. We become reduced to animals. Uh, And so that's what you learn with uh, the king of Babylon, here. he becomes like an animal. And so he's humbled, and then after he's humbled, after a time period, God restores his mind to him so that he's... restores his humanity to him and he's learned his lesson and he says okay now i know that it's god who's the ruler and i have my kingdom only at his good pleasure and so on so uh here's another entryway into this idea of uh of uh, babylon here we go to luke and i've referenced this a number of times the temptation scenes of our lords okay um The Lord has three temptations. The devil tempts the Lord with three different temptations. And the final one is this. The devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall be yours. Of course, Christ says, No, I'm not going to worship you. And he cites Scripture. So it's good to remember Scripture. All right? So Christ cites Deuteronomy and puts the devil to flight. And, uh, but the temptation here is that, you see, Jesus was called to be king of the universe, but he had to do it God's way. All right? He had to go through uh, the path that God called him down, which entailed the cross. It entailed sacrifice, suffering. Well, the devil always tries to get us to achieve our end that God's calling us to, but without the cross. Without the sacrifice, without the suffering, all right, without obedience. So that's what we work, we learn here. But the point is, is that uh, another point here is that all the kingdoms of this world, in to a certain extent, they're under the authority of of Satan, and uh, there's a certain kind of glory that they have, but it's not God's glory, all right. So they can be seductive, you know. I actually quite right now. I, I'm very sometimes when I was younger. Um, this is a side point. When I was younger, you'd ask someone in second grade, "Who wants to be the Who wants to be the president of the United States?" You'd have four kids raise their hands. You know, everybody wanted to be the president of the United States. Uh, now I don't think you you have that. Like you ask kids, do "You want to be the president?" I don't care about like being president. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, I think there's.
1: Especially
0: today. Do you? Do you? what did you say?
1: I said especially, especially not today. Especially today, maybe. Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know if that's your experience or not, but I find that with the younger younger kids, they. They don't. It's different than when I was when I was younger. Second grade, yeah, you'd have a lot of kids saying they want to be. So it's good to want to. I think it's good to want to be actually a statesman, a politician, because you can serve uh, the people, and you have a public. If you if you cultivate a public spirit and you serve people, it's good. Uh, But there's a temptation there. So like always, in any position of power, you start. You can be tempted, and you can forget that you're. Your authority and your ability to do good for other people comes to you from God, and you can start to say, like, oh, this is all about me, I'm really important, all this kind of stuff. So that's, that's, the, that's the perennial temptation, all right? And we saw that with the king of Babylon. Now, this is something else here. Um, there is, uh, in, in the New Testament is very clear, but it's also in the Old Testament as well. There's a figure, I think I've mentioned this in past times, there's a figure that the New Testament refers to as the Antichrist. And it will be, it's a, it's a prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. A man who will come right before the second coming of Jesus Christ who will be like a, a Jesus substitute. Uh, he will be like a messianic uh, imposter. And the people will look at him and the, the nations of the world will look at him as this guy is our greatest hope. He's going to unite us all. Uh, you know, we hear all these words today about globalization and all this stuff. He's going to do globalization, but he's going to do it his way. Um, and he's gonna be the greatest thing since sliced bread. Everybody's gonna love him. And, uh, there'll be a kind of an element to him, though, that's tyrannical. He'll be seductive and he'll be very, um, charismatic and people will love him. But at the same time, there'll be a tyrannical side to him or edge to him. And, uh, the, the church will be the persecuted, the worst that it's ever been persecuted, uh, in, in its history at that time in the future. So the Antichrist has not yet come, but there are, people who have come in history who are like the Antichrist and who move in the spirit of the Antichrist. And we see that pattern all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, and then even into the church history too, outside and past the Bible, you find people moving in the, in the spirit of Antichrist. So this is a text that the ancient church fathers, uh, one of the many texts that they traditionally ascribe to um, the Antichrist, that it has to do with the Antichrist. So this is Jesus... And he's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. So this is Jesus being rejected by uh, his own co-religionists. If another comes in his own name, and that's what the ancient fathers interpreted as he's dealing, he's he's talking about the Antichrist. It's a veiled reference to the Antichrist. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, we we want to seek to be like God. We want to seek divine glory, but we want to seek it from God and on God's own terms. And the sin of pride, uh, the sin of Babel, the sin of the Antichrist, the sin of Lucifer comes about when we seek this kind of divine glory, but we're going to seek it from other human beings. We're going to look for it in our... Own human resources, and we're going to uh, be content with that kind of glory. But it's a really, it's a dehumanizing glory. So, we're going back to this idea of gaining a name for ourselves. The builders of the Tower of Babel, they want to gain a name for themselves. Because they want to be renowned, they want to be famous, they want to be glorified by human beings. But also, it has to do with the future as well. So they not only would be glorified and get a name for themselves in their lifetimes, but after they die, they want their name to pass on. Okay? And so the ancient kings would build these huge monuments about to themselves so that they would never be forgotten. And this really, this idea of getting a name for yourself is a, really, it's a way of being immortal. It's a way of not dying. It's a way of gaining eternal life. Sort of like an eternal life substitute. Okay? They want to overcome death, and they want to attain unto deification on their own terms. So uh, this gets us into these different concepts here: millenarianism, utopianism, Marxism. All right, unity, prosperity, happiness without God. There is a there is a tendency of human beings whenever they throw off the yoke of true faith and true religion to want to then... It's not that they've given up on heaven altogether. It's that they're going to create it for themselves. But they're going to create it on earth. and They're going to create it their own way. And so that's where he gets into this like utopian kind of dreams. Marxism is very much a, a utopianism. Marxism is essentially saying that um, the highest reality is material goods, is material things, that there is no such thing as soul, as spirit, or as, as God. And the highest reality is material things and so therefore we have to order everything in society to attain kind of a maximum production of material goods and uh, there are these innate laws uh, like sort of evolutionary laws within ec- the economy of human uh, civilization that they progress from a hunter-gatherer society to uh, an agrarian society to, a, to a, a free market capitalist society then it, it turns into a Marxist society so in the Marxist society is supposed to be the supreme height of human economic evolution. And we should do everything within our power to actually realize that, including bloody revolutions and whatnot. So that's Marxism, okay? It's been the scourge of the world. And it's a deliberately atheistic um, uh, vision of politics and of human civilization. And it says, let's build a world, let's build a really great world, let's build the best world we can And one world as well. You know, the Marxist mentality is not like let's just stick within our own country. The Marxist mentality is because it's inevitable that the whole world is going to turn Marxist. We can we're just going to help that along. So that's why the the Marxist revolutionaries are all about going into other countries, fomenting revolutions, spreading it all over the place. So you know, spread to China, spread to South America, Mexico, and so on. Anyways, Marxism is a perfect example of utopianism, and it's this kind of. Luciferian pride that wants to build the human civilization without God. And so we get the two cities. The two cities. This is a theme that I talked about right in the beginning here. Two cities. There's the city of man, and then there's the city of God. And we've got all these texts here. I think the this is the missing all these missing um, slides I had them. I had these biblical texts up. So, like the book of Revelation, Galatians, and. uh... So, what I'll do is I'll just try to the best of my memory, try to do it. Okay, so if you look to the apocalypse in chapter 17, verses 3 through 5, you've got this vision of a harlot, of this um, prostitute. And she's dressed in scarlet. And she's got this chalice of blood in her hands. Alright? And it's the blood of the martyrs. So she's responsible for killing Christian martyrs. And she's sitting on a beast. And this beast is the Antichrist. And it's got seven heads. And it's symbolic of the seven mountains of Rome. So it's the Roman civilization. But when it comes to give the name, it says, and I saw this symbol, and they talk about, in the book of Revelation, the symbols are called mysteries. And so I saw a mystery. It says, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the, of the earth. And so Babylon. I mean, it's really kind of like a critique of the Roman Empire, actually, which was responsible for killing Christians in the, in the first century. But it's interesting, because they don't use the word Rome. It's Babylon. Because Babylon in the Old Testament is a symbol of this kind of satanic oppressor of the chosen people of God. So there's this woman... Symbolizes Babylon, but that's in contrast to uh, Revelation or the Apocalypse chapter 12, where we see a woman who's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. Now, this is Israel 12 stars. Okay, this is the elect people of God, it's also the Blessed Mother, Uh, it's also the church. Okay, and uh, so you've got you know, good woman, bad woman, basically, is what, what we're looking at here. So, uh, the, the city of God is this woman clothed with the sun, and then the city of man is this Babylon woman. All right. And then let's see here, 21, 10-11, uh, in the Apocalypse, chapter 21, the, the, an angel brings John up to a very high mountain, and he, and he says to him, Come, I will show you the bride of the Lamb. And so here's this woman, the bride of the Lamb. And so he goes up on this mountain, and he looks over this huge plain, and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So it's the city of God coming down. It's very beautiful. Uh, Galatians 4.26, St. Paul says, But our mother is from above. That is Jerusalem, the heavenly city. In Hebrews 11, all those different references from Hebrews basically talks about the city of God again. Okay. Now we've got these two uh, wonderful quotes from St. Augustine. Now has anybody ever heard uh, St. Augustine's Confessions? Has anybody ever heard that? It's a famous work that he wrote. Okay? A few people have heard it. Okay. Has anybody ever heard St. Augustine's uh, The City of God? A few people, maybe less, okay. St. Augustine wrote The City of God um, in the end of the 4th uh, century, beginning of the 5th century. And it's huge, it's like this thick. <laughs> and it took him like 20 years to write it. He was a busy bishop, but he was still writing. And what was happening at that time was very interesting because Christianity was, became a state, had become a state religion uh, in the Roman Empire, and it was flourishing very, very widely and successfully. And the pagan religion was going was diminishing, 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 but then the, the barbarians from the Teutonic and the Germanic barbarians were coming down from the north and were taking over the Roman Empire. And the pagans were saying, see, this is what happens when you embrace Christianity. The gods are punishing us because we're getting overrun by the barbarians. So it seemed like kind of a good argument against Christianity. So Augustine hauls off and he writes The City of God, All right, the book this thick, to try to defend Christianity. So it's this huge masterpiece of an apologetic. And what he does is he traces all of human history from you know, our first parents, Adam and Eve, all the way up into his own day. He traces the entire course of human history as he knew it you know i mean the scholarship historical scholarship at that time wasn't as good as it is today but it was pretty good you know i mean he, he had a he had a breadth of knowledge that's pretty impressive and so he traces all of human history but more importantly than being accurate about every fact that he details is he gives a theological understanding of human history that's what we're doing here in this class it's called the economy of salvation uh, uh, the 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 history of salvation or salvation history. I want to show you how human history is ordered towards, um, uh, according to God's wisdom. It's a theological understanding of history. That's basically what we're doing in this class here. So I'm following my uh, my teacher, uh, Saint Augustine, and he writes the book, The City of God. And so in the City of God, he's got this uh, these two cities, the city of man and the city of God. This is a great quote here. We distribute the human race into two kinds of men. One living according to man, the other living according to God. Mystically, we call them two cities, or two societies of men, the one of which is predestined to reign eternally with God, the other to suffer eternal punishment with the devil. And then here's another quote. I forgot to put quotation marks around this. These two cities are made by two loves. Very interesting. Two loves. The earthly city. By love of oneself, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly city, by love of God, even to the contempt of self. That's mm-hmm. a, a really great way of phrasing it. So the one glories in itself, okay, the city of man glories in itself, the other glories in God. The one seeks glory from men, just like we learned about with John when Jesus says, How can you believe when you <coughs> seek glory from men? Okay, the one seeks glory from men. To the other, God, with, uh, God, witness of conscience is its glory. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, "You are my glory. You are the one who raises my head." Very interesting, though, because notice there's nothing wrong with raising the head, right? See, there's nothing wrong with that aspiring unto uh, divinity, so to speak, to the divine nature. But you have to do it according to God, according to, on His terms, and not on your own. So it's God who raises the head. <coughs> Uh, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, says St. James, and he will exalt you. So now we get to Abraham. And we see that all of this has been set up here. The Tower of Babel has been set up, and then it's, suddenly Abraham's going to come on the scene, and it's all going to make sense. All right? So now the Bible lists all the nations of the earth in Genesis 10. It describes how they lost God's favor in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis 12, with Abraham coming, it shows how they'll get God's blessing back through Abraham. Okay, So now, Abraham is going to be this key instrument of, of restoration. So this is the key text that I want to focus on here. We've got about 20 minutes left. I don't know if we'll get through it all, but we'll see. So the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your land, okay, in Hebrew, land is eretz, and from your relatives... And from your father's house to the land, Eretz, which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Very key phrase right there. So, families is uh, mishpacha in Hebrew, mishpacha. And then you've got this other word that I focused a lot on last time. It's very interesting. It's translated either earth or ground, adama. And it's significant because adama is precisely that which God cursed in the beginning. All right, God cursed the earth on account of the original sin. But then there's going to be a blessing that's going to restore, kind of counteract that curse on the earth. So all the families, so let's look at this word families, mishpacha. In Genesis 10, Genesis 10 is the table of nations. Okay, we're just after the flood, Noah's three sons go out, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then all of these different civilizations are recounted as having stemmed from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All, this, all these huge, it was like 70 nations or something, right? So in Genesis 10, we see that many different families, but it specifically uses the word mishpachah. The different families or the different tribes of mankind are divided by their languages. But in Genesis 11, we learn that the sin of the Tower of Babel is the origin of this division of languages and families. So what we have here is these different human families divided according to languages but it's a result of Babel. So this division amongst the human race is a result, at least in part, of human sin. And um, the Tower of Babel was kind of uh, an attempt to basically overcome that division, but through human means, through human strength. So if we go to Genesis chapter 10, this is the Table of Nations. These are the sons of Japheth, each with his own language by their families, Mishpachah, and their nations. And we see it's the same for all three sons, Ham, Shem, they got these. Okay, so we just make that point here, tying Mishbaha back to ten. Uh, so now let's look at this word, uh, we're going back to the blessing of to the promise to Abraham, the families of the earth, families of the ground, Adamah. The word earth appears many times in, in the primeval narrative, that's Genesis one through eleven, and it ties it together thematically. God has cursed the ground because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Mention that. Okay, so in Genesis twelve three, Abraham, in consequence, what we can see, it's very it's implicit here, Abraham will unite the divided families of man, and he will reverse the curse of the ground. The blessing of Abraham will cancel the division of Babel and the effects of the original sin. This is the true and efficacious restoration of the blessing given to man, right in Genesis chapter one. So, when God created man and woman, He said um, He blessed them. He said, "Be fruitful and multiply." So, there's this blessing that's there right from the beginning. But curse, come, the curse comes in as a result of original sin. Now, with Abraham, there's a return finally to the blessing, right? So, but the point here that I focused on a lot here, the unity and the immortality, oh, the other, we we'll talk about immortality, is, um, you know, God says to Abraham that, uh, we, let's go back to that original text here. You'll see another point here. So, go forth from your land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And what's the name? What's, what about Abraham's name? What about Abraham's name? Oh, that's true. You're right. Actually, there's a lot to that. But what about in particular, though? What What's he say is going to about his name? Amen. It's going to make it great, just like the people in the Tower of Babel said, "Let's make a name for ourselves." Okay. So, but this time it's going to be God who's going to be making a name for Abraham. All right. So there's a kind of immortality that's being hinted at here. So eternal life that was lost. You know, the further implication is that eternal life that was lost with when, when Adam sinned. Is going to be restored through Abraham. Oh, so, but the point is the unity and the immortality realized through Abraham will be realized in God, not as at Babel, apart from God or against God. So, how will this blessing be realized in Abraham? In Genesis 22 18, if we go back to Genesis 12, that original foundational text, it says that in you. All the families of the ground will be blessed. So in you, in Abraham, but in Genesis 22, that in you is, is explicated a little bit. It's explained. It's made more specific. It says, "In your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed." In your seed. So now we're going to get and talk about the seed. Brings us back to that original promise in Genesis chapter 3:15, where it says, "I will place enmity between you and the woman." Between your seed and her seed, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He, the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, is going to be realized in Abraham's seed. Okay. So in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Very interesting too, note well, that this is Genesis chapter 22, right after, and we're going to study this in our third session with Abraham, right after Abraham... Basically, in in a prophetic manner, reenacts the crucifixion. Okay, with his son Abraham. I'm sorry, with his son Isaac. All right, and so it's right after that holy obedience of Abraham, all to the point where he was actually willing to sacrifice his son. That now the seed is talked about because Christ is evoked. Christ is brought into the picture here through the through that obedience. Today's reading. Um, in the, uh, and I preached on it today. I think it was, no, maybe it was yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday's reading, Tuesday's reading for the daily mass, it was Philippians chapter 2. And St. Paul says, Have this mind in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped after, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he humbled himself. Uh, and And being the found humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of a cross, and therefore God highly exalted him, and that's opposite of Adam. So when the serpent came to Adam, says, "You know, eat this, eat this fruit, participate in the tree of knowledge, in this fruit of the tree of knowledge, and you will be like God." And so Adam says, "Ah, I'll be like God." So he's grasping for divinity, but Christ, who actually was God, did the opposite. He didn't grasp for divinity, but rather he emptied himself and he became a man. And that obedience then was demonstrated, that humility and that obedience was demonstrated to the, to the utmost degree when he went to Calvary and, and died for us in obedience to God the Father, out of love for God and for us. And so uh, this is reenacted though in, in Genesis 22, reenacted in, in a proleptic manner, in an anticipatory manner through um, Abraham's obedience to God. And it's in that Christ-like obedience of Abraham that the seed now is spoken of. The seed. In your seed, all the the nations of the world will be blessed. So, uh, seed can mean a lot of things. Seed can mean uh, descendants in general. Okay, So it can mean just offspring in general. So in various passages, when God is speaking to Abraham, He says, your seed will be like the stars of heaven for the multitude. There will be as many... You'll have as many descendants as there are stars in heaven. Okay, Your seed will be great like that. So seed can mean descendants in general. Seed can also mean an immediate offspring, an immediate individual child. So um, uh, when Eve gives birth to Seth, who basically replaces Cain, the firstborn, and replaces Abel because Abel was killed. She has Seth, and she's very happy, and it sucks about... I have... I have uh, I have borne seed from the Lord. Okay, so there's an individual child that she immediately gave birth to. So, therefore, the seed of the woman can be Jesus born of Mary. Alright? But also, here, what I want to focus on here is that seed can be an individual (coughs) descendant generations down the line. Alright? And so, Jesus, in that sense, is the seed of Abraham. Alright? So, if we go to um, Genesis chapter 5, uh, Noah and I, I said this is a fascinating text I really this really affected me when I started to realize understood what this text in Genesis chapter five verse 29 actually meant when Noah is born his parents speak in such a way that it, it lets us see that wow from the beginning the, this lineage that springs forth from Adam they really were expecting an individual savior figure who is going to re- Uh, redeem them from the curse of the earth Uh, and they kind of maybe they got it wrong or maybe there was maybe they understood that Noah was a type of the seed of the woman who was going to come and redeem human beings from the curse of the earth. In any event though that that text helps us understand how Genesis itself is interpreting the seed of the woman. It's an individual savior figure. And then this becomes really clear in 1 Chronicles 17.11 so let's fast forward After Abraham, we're gonna get into Moses, and then after Moses, we're gonna get into David. But I'm gonna jump ahead to David, just like a sneak peek. So David is, uh, has a prophet come to him, and says that, you know, your seed is going to stay, is gonna be on your throne forever. So now the seed of the woman, spoken of in Genesis 3, spoken about more as the seed of Abraham, is now really, really clarified in Chronicles 17 where the seed of David now is going to be the future Messiah, the Davidic king that's going to come. So there's more clarity. As we continue through salvation history, as the economy of salvation rolls out, it becomes more clear, and Jesus becomes more and more clear as we go along. Uh, And then Genesis 49 and Numbers 24 might imply the same. And So let's look at those texts themselves. We've got about nine minutes left here. Okay, so let's look at Chronicles. This is David. This is uh, the prophet speaking to King David. Uh, let's have another reader read that up, right up on the screen. Who can we have to read that? Uh, Tony, you want to read that for us?
1: When your days are fulfilled to go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever.
0: So it's very remarkable. This is about 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. It's a very, very powerful uh, prophecy of the Messiah. Very definite, very clear. An individual seed who will come and his throne will be established forever. All right. So this is the seed we see all the way back in Genesis 3, the seed that we see with Abraham. All right. uh, Genesis 49. By the end of the book of Genesis, the Messiah as a king figure starts to become more clear as well. So let's go to Genesis 49. This is Jacob now. He's the... Um, Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob gives birth to the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob is on his deathbed and they say that uh, you can prophesy on your deathbed. And so Jacob's going to prophesy about the future of all his children. And so he says to Judah, now Judah is the tribe through which the Messiah is going to come. And he says to Judah, the scepter... Okay, scepter is a, is a symbol of kingly, specifically kingly authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So all the nations of the world are going to be obedient to this figure who's kingly because he's got a scepter staff. All right, so there's Messianic prophecy right in Genesis, all right? Um, And there's very... Genesis 49.10 is very interesting. You can translate it all these different ways, and there's these different versions, and every different translation uh, brings out different insights. It's very fascinating. Here's another one in Numbers 24, going on through the Pentateuch. Okay, this uh, pagan prophet, actually, by the name of Balaam, prophesies, and he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob... And a scepter, same word that's used in Genesis 49, Shabbat, Shabbat, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. So, there, you know, this idea of the dominion over the nations, okay? Uh, okay, I think it's, uh, well, we got about five minutes left here. Um, maybe we might want to stop right here because we're going to start talking about how in that initial blessing or initial prophecy that God gives to Abraham or initial revelation, um, you know, it's, it's going to become more clear how all salvation history is wrapped up into this because it's basically, in that verse, is contained a prophecy of the church, uh, the church as the temple of God, as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, um. As the new heavens, the new earth. I mean, there's just all this stuff is in there. So we're gonna we're gonna get into that, and then hopefully we'll also next time we get together, and then next time also we'll get into Genesis 18 when the three men visit Abraham, and they talk about how Sarah is going to give birth to the seed, to the chosen seed, Isaac, uh, which is really kind of a foreshadowing of the incarnation of of Christ. We'll get into that more, and maybe we'll be able to have time to get into. Abraham as a heavenly intercessor, as a, as a saint in heaven, interceding for us uh, as our father in faith. So you're more than welcome at this time with just a few minutes left to have comments. Or, and you could have been talking about, you know, you could have been, I kind of get going, I get going real quick, but you're more than welcome to interrupt me and you know, when I when I get going up here and talk and have your own contributions, questions, whatever you have. Go ahead. What is Abraham translated to? Isn't it, Father? Yeah, it is. It's it's great father, something like that, exalted father. Okay. So, yeah, there's all this stuff about his name uh, in Genesis 14, I believe. Uh, and well, I think we'll look at that further on here. There's a name change. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Uh, and it's part of this whole idea of making his name great. And he will become a father of kings. That's the other thing that's going to get in. So it's very specific, which is remarkable because Abraham is a shepherd. Okay, Abraham's descendants will be shepherds for generations, for a long, for a thousand years. But yet, so, because Abraham's coming in about 2000 BC, David doesn't come to about a thousand BC. So there's a thousand years of nomadic life, of non, there's no kings ruling over Israel, but yet Abraham is told that kings will come forth from him. So there's this messianic prophecies already there with, with Abraham. It's really incredible.
1: What does that word mean,
0: Father? Eschatological. Eschatological. I explained this, I think, in the first or the second one. Well, so no, that's okay. <laughs> uh, and the the eschaton is uh, it's a Greek word and it means end. Okay. And so the end of the world. The New Testament talks about the end of time or the end of the world. They use the word eschaton. Uh, but end can mean have two significant you know sort of meanings to it. Um, you can talk about how this class is coming to an end. Or you can say, uh, what is the end of this device? The end of this device is to record our voice. Okay, so end can mean finis, finis, you know, end, right? But it can also mean uh, purpose or meaning. And so eschaton has both of those senses right into it. And so when we talk about the eschaton, we talk about the end of the world, but also the meaning of the world. It's the direction of the purpose of the world, where all of salvation history is headed. It's all ordered towards the eschaton. And so then we use it as an adjective, the eschatological. We talk about, for example, this upcoming Sunday, pay attention, because the Old Testament reading is going to be this temple with water flowing forth from it. And I'm going to preach about how that temple is the eschatological temple. Uh, which is really a symbol of the church, all right? with the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist coming forth from it like they came forth from Christ's side when he was on the cross. And His side of his and water and blood came forth from his side. So talk about the eschatological temple. This is the eschatological dwelling place of God. So from the beginning, God created the world with an end in mind, with a purpose in mind, and that is that he would dwell with man for eternity. And so... The world is like a temple. The Garden of Eden is like a temple. The temple was built to bring us back to that original dwelling place with God, and then the church is formed to be an eschatological, the eschatological dwelling place of God. It's the temple of God for Him to dwell in. So, any other contributions, thoughts? We got 30 seconds. (laughs) Would (laughs) you want us to read from next week? So just focus on Genesis 18 for next week.
1: All right, thank you.